unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. So the same downloading the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm Assistant Professor of English here at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And this morning I am joined by Michael Farmer from Tallahassee, Florida. Michael, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? David Grubbs, who is supposed to moderate this morning, uh, doesn't have access to his recording equipment, the contingency of Thanksgiving being what it is. Uh, he just couldn't join us this morning. So instead of his science fiction and fantasy episode this morning, we're doing a special episode. We're calling it Christian Humanist Podcast, Episode 5.1. Uh, and we are going to continue our conversation that we had last week about New Calvinism and Emergent. We got some really good feedback this week, uh, not only from some of our regular listeners, but also from Tony Jones himself, uh, someone who we mentioned last week as one of the most visible figures within Emergent. And so Michael and I decided that, you know, since we don't have David with us. We're going to go ahead and talk about that. A couple things that I want to mention before we get going on that. Uh, first of all, we want to thank everyone who has commented on blogs, who has chimed in on... Uh, I'm trying to think, Michael, did we get any email to the official podcast email address? The um, we got that said, long email from Sam Mulberry. That's right, that's right. Do you want to address that quickly, and then we'll then we'll move on to the body of the conversation? Well, you addressed it um, not quickly on your blog, so anyone who's interested in uh, what Sam said, the kind of brief outlines of it, uh, and what Nathan responded to it, can go to his blog at nathangilmore.com slash hardly, and there's a link right. to it on my blog as well. And yeah, and I imagine in today's show notes, to the extent we have show notes, uh, you can put a link to that, Michael? Uh, absolutely. All right, very good, very good. Well, at any rate, Michael, I mean, one of the things that we didn't get to talk about a whole lot last week was that Emergent itself, uh, I mean, the joke about Emergent is the reason that you have an Emergent church is because a critical mass of youth ministers all got fired at the same time. Uh, but, you know, intellectually speaking, uh, I think we can talk responsibly about Emergent as rising out of post-structuralist philosophy. This is something that really became big in the European Academy in the 60s and 70s, came over to America in the 80s and 90s, and really infiltrated what I would call evangelical seminaries, not until late 90s and this decade. And of course, really, it's totally out in the mainstream academy now, or mostly out. Well, out in the philosophy departments. I still think it has a lot of traction in the English departments and in the religion departments. I mean, is that fair enough, or do you think that it's lost traction there, too? I think it's lost quite a bit. I mean, if you look at the um, the 80s and 90s in particular, it had a hegemony, to use one of their favorite words, in the mainstream academy. And it Isn't doesn't that the cricket so much to anymore. talk to Pinocchio? What's that now? Hegemony cricket? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, I mean, at UGA, for example, I think I only took one class that utilized critical theory in any kind of um, major way. Oh, really? Well, see, I, I ran into it all over the place. Now, of course, in Renaissance studies, you know, a a certain subset of critical theory, and I guess they would probably disagree that it's even critical theory at all, called new historicism, 
which largely borrows its influence from Michel Foucault, uh, really is ascendant. But, you know, when I took classes over in uh, Middle English literature, when I took classes in critical theory, I mean, it was still a big thing. In American Lit, you say, though, Michael, it's pretty much out right now. Yeah, and I wonder if part of that is it was never quite as ascendant in American Lit as it was in British Lit to begin with. I mean, the Renaissance yeah, I, folks love yeah, them. I think some you could make theory. a case for that. I think you could also make a case that, you know, because it borrows so much of its vocabulary and so much of its project from medieval philosophy, uh, I think that it, you know, just simply had more purchase when you're talking about texts that are interacting with uh, Duns Scotus and William of Ockham and folks like that. So, And if I can be a little more cynical, I think one of, one of the issues here may also be that they've been talking about those Renaissance texts for 500 years. They've been talking about even the oldest American texts for no more than 250, and there's just much less new you can say without without moving to some sort of um, critical mindset. Is, is that, that is, fair to say? That, 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 that is cynical. No, I, I think that you're largely right. I think that, you know, the, the crisis within, you know, Shakespeare and Milton studies especially, but I think in other medieval and Renaissance texts too, is that, you know, your choices now are to do something so innovative that it's really never been done before or else to, you know, start more of a conservative project like, for instance, the study of classics has done. Uh, you know, UGA's classics department, their focus is almost exclusively on classics education now, uh, which, you know, I don't see a whole lot of English departments being ready to concede yet. No, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where English departments go in the next five years, because I do think critical theory is kind of on its way out, um, for better or for worse. I mean, there, there, are, there are interesting things in the study of critical theory, and I've um, written and attempted to get published critical theory papers, so I'm, I'm not wholly against it. I'm more against it than I was when I wrote those papers. But, uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see where things go in that regard. Right. Well, and as usual, I, you know, I think I'm probably more sanguine about critical theory than you or David is, but I'm usually more sanguine than you two about most things. So, You know, I was thinking about this, and since this is a weird show anyway, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. The difference between you and me, Nathan, is that you feel absolutely comfortable in all movements, which is how you can <laughs> some, 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 somehow simultaneously post to a new Calvinist blog and an emergent blog. Um, so you feel comfortable in all situations, and I feel comfortable in almost none. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes on the same day, I would post to the Emergent blog, the New Calvinist blog, and the Christian Feminist blog. Uh, that was during the summer, back before I started this job, so I haven't been doing any of the three here lately. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, I do tend to find interesting questions in just about every intellectual movement. Well, speaking of intellectual movements, you know, jumping back to Emergent and New Calvinism, I mean, Michael, you do a lot of work with 20th century intellectual movements, especially with existentialist philosophy. Uh, do you see any of that sort of influence in either emergent or the New Calvinism? Well, I, I do. Um, not so much with the New Calvinism, but with emergent. And I think um, a lot of it comes from the fact that existentialists are generally, or at least commonly, seen as um, precursors to post-structuralism itself. And uh, so if you take a critical theory class, you're probably going to end up reading Jean-Paul Sartre's essay, What is Literature?, um, and that, that essay is in some ways an early version of Roland Barthes' uh, Death of the Author. And so it makes sense to a certain degree. Um, both, both of those movements, so both existentialism and post-structuralism, kind of embrace radical subjectivity. 
So there's a degree to which the emergent church in its um, embrace of, not, not quite embrace, but in its influence from existentialism is just conducting the mission that the um, Christian existentialists of the last century conducted, which, which is to say um, they're attempting to mesh the philosophy of the day, in this case post-structuralism, with uh, historic Christianity, and, and there's varied degrees of orthodoxy in, in those movements. Um, and like the Christian existentialists, there are all sorts of emergent theologians, which I, I don't know if we hit that hard enough last week. But there's all, all sorts of them, and there's some who are basically conservative, and there's some who bear little resemblance to historic Christianity. Oh, sure, sure. And I mean, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, because we only had an hour last week, as I said on my blog post, you know, we couldn't cover the broad spectrum of diversity, either in New Calvinism or in Emergent. But, you know, I mean, you look at figures like... Uh, Scott McKnight over on the emergent side, uh, James K.A. Smith over on the New Calvinist side. And I mean, well, and actually, I mean, I, I don't even know. You're, you're calling him a New Calvinist? What now? It's funny you would call him a New Calvinist because he wrote that book, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? Uh, oh, he... sure. But, I mean, in his essays, I mean, he's always talking about his own reformed background. And so, he teaches at te- Calvin where you have to sign, the, I think, the Westminster Confession. So I guess he yes, is. You, 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 you stole my thunder on that one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so, I mean, he's one of those figures that, you know, I think far more skillfully than I do bridges the gap between those two groups and says, all right, there are fruitful things uh, both in maintaining this reformed heritage and in engaging you know, post-structuralist phenomenologist philosophy. Um, You know, one of the things, you know, again, since this is an unusual episode and we don't have a real tight agenda today, uh, last week's Christ the Center podcast, I I do admit that I was pulling my hair out, driving down the road, listening to that podcast, because they spent probably 12 minutes talking about how they wished there were some professional philosopher with reformed commitments and I'm thinking, hello, Jamie Smith, Jamie Smith. And he's Jamie a fairly Smith. big name. You would have think they would have. Um, you would think they would have thought of him. Well, yeah. I mean, and I wonder, you know, if that is a symptom of that bunker mentality that you know people who claim that they're Calvinist really aren't, unless they completely swear off post-structuralist philosophy. Uh, I, I imagine so. And I, I got. I got. I don't. Um, I don't totally agree with his assessment of post-structuralism. Um, but I, I like the work he's doing, and I think he's doing God's work, as it were. He's also a a, a very nice man. When I when I read um, when I read Who's Afraid of Postmodernism, I was going through a crisis of faith in re- in relation to critical theory, and I sent him an email, and he wrote back um, very kindly and very helpfully. So. Oh, very cool. Let's I've see, got nothing I, but I respect actually for read and wrote a review for uh, theooze.com, another one of the emergent websites that I used to frequent. And by the way, let, let me just go ahead and say that I mean my lack of involvement both with New Calvinism and with emergent here in the last several months have everything to do with a three-month-old at home and nothing to do with my swearing off the movements. I, I realize that folks from both of those circles haven't seen much of me recently. That's why. <laughs> I just don't have as much internet time as I used to have. <laughs> but at any rate, to get back to my point, I mean, you know, his uh, his book, Introducing Radical Orthodoxy, you know, that is another one of those movements that is definitely engaging post-structuralist philosophy, post-nationalist po- political theory, uh, doing it from a distinctively Roman Catholic point of view, although there are Protestants and there are Eastern Orthodox who affiliate themselves with that movement, uh, but who, I mean, just for instance, to return to Tony Jones for a second, you know, I mean, in 
podcasts that I've heard with him, I mean, he said that, you know, both the Yale School, Stan Hauerwas, George Lindbeck, Hans Fry, and the Radical Orthodox Movement, John Milbank, Catherine Pickstock, uh, William Cavanaugh, you know, he feels like the intellectual wing of the emergent movement, you know, which obviously he's one of the big names in that intellectual wing, you know, he feels like they have moved beyond those people because they are still rooted in the institutions of the academy in a way that folks like Tony Jones are not anymore. I don't know what, what, what it is I want to follow that up with, but I mean, you know, thinking about folks like Jamie Smith, thinking about folks like Stan Hauerwas, folks like John Milbank, you know, one of the things that I emphasized in the blog post, and I want to go ahead and say now, since we're following up on it, is that there is a vast, vast array of Christians who are engaging with post-structuralist linguistics, post-nationalist political philosophy, uh, who would not be considered part of this emergent movement. And likewise, and Michael, I, I wonder if you could speak to this, especially since you're a person who reads BART, you know, there's a vast, vast group of people who are engaging with Calvin and with Calvinism uh, who wouldn't necessarily be on that Josh Harris, uh, Mark Driscoll bandwagon. I mean, can you speak to some of that range of people? I, I'm not I'm not sure that I can um, in, in terms of um, ter- terms of BART and, and... – I, I'm not. What I'm saying is, I'm not sure that most of the people who uh, who read Bart nowadays are Calvinist. I, I ah, think he's okay, okay. he's kind of been ejected from Calvinism. Even though I mean, he was he was quite reformed. I mean, he believed in predestination in a certain sense. <laughs> um, but I, I I don't think most of the people who would claim him as a theological influence um, would consider themselves Calvinists anymore. All right. Well, t- how about a uh, Frank Schaefer or Francis Schaefer? Pardon me. You know, he's one of those people who often gets cited as a Calvinist intellectual historian. I know that he was big stuff at Toccoa Falls College and still is. I have a friend at church who's a student there, and she tells me that, you know, he's still all the rage there. Oh, yeah. uh, as far as I know, TFC is not a officially a Calvinist college, is it? Uh, no, it's not. It's um, officially nothing. It's kind of... Um... Uh, loosely affiliated with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, although I don't think that association is as loose as they claim it is. It's just loose enough where they don't get any money from the CNMA, from my understanding. But but, um, there's a huge Calvinist contingent there, like I talked about in our Calvinism episode, and in particular the head of the English department, Don Williams, who uh, probably is not listening, but maybe he should. Um, he he's a uh, I think he calls himself a four and a half point Calvinist, and uh, so he runs the Western Thought and Culture program, um, from my understanding, and that's where you read Schaefer at TFC. So um, I, I can't imagine him affiliating himself, for example, with Mark Driscoll. So you're probably right in that there's an evangelical um, contingent of Calvinism that really wouldn't want anything to do with uh, Driscoll and the like. Right, right, and then I or mean, Bart for that matter. Or, or as, as long as we're talking about, you know, sort of figures out on the edges of this debate, you know, you've got folks like Clark Pinnock, who is, you know, still labels himself an evangelical theologian, and I personally think he is. I think that folks who think that he's the most dangerous man in Christendom just don't run with very dangerous company. Yeah. Uh, and then you have, you know, folks like Michael Spencer, who, you know, it, oh, Internet Monk, if you ever listen to this podcast and mention us on yours, you will drive our traffic up a hundredfold. If you ever hear us, please pitch us. Uh, but, you know, he is someone who 
likes Tony Jones and likes Mark Driscoll, but says that both of them are dead wrong on certain points. And no, I am not Michael Spencer, Michael Farmer, so don't say that. <laughs> oh, that's close. <laughs> yeah, and actually I have a great deal more respect for those people than I do doctrinaire members of the movement, or of either movement. Just, just in general, I have uh, I have more respect for people who uh, who don't come down on one side or the other on extreme positions like this. All right. Well, as far uh, as Clark you know, Pennant goes, by the way, I've never actually read him, but I was in um, college, Bible college, when um, he uh, almost got kicked out of the ETS. And while I am absolutely nothing close to an open theist, I'm in fact the exact opposite. I uh, remember vociferously defending his opinion on the uh, TFC campus. Open theism, in my opinion anyway, is not a heresy. It's uh, it's wrong, but it's not a heresy. Well, uh, I'm going to push you, Michael. I mean, what is the difference between wrong opinion and heresy as far as you're concerned? If it contradicts the apostles or Nicene Creed, it's heresy. You're not going to go any further than that, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I will call okay. heretic. I, I, I mean, I know that's not a that's not a popular thing to do nowadays, but I'll ca- I'll call heretic, and I don't I don't think open theism's a heresy. I think it's um I just think it's wrong, and that's okay. I th- I'm probably wrong too. All right, all right, that's fair enough. Um, I did, by the way, we we got off track here, but I did want to I did want to talk about the differences between existentialism and postmodernism, oh, and go thus ahead, go ahead. the yeah, differences between someone like Bart and um, and the emergent church. Um, and, and I I don't think poststructuralism is as compatible with Christianity as existentialism is. Um, and, and one reason, of course, is that existentialism was founded by Christians, however you look at it. You can put the beginnings of that movement with Augustine and Pascal, or you can put them with Kierkegaard or Dostoevsky, but even the term existentialism was coined by Gabriel Marcel, who was devoutly Catholic. So Christianity existentialism has this long, more or less friendly history, despite what Heidegger wants you to believe, despite despite uh, Sartre's public face, um, Th- those two are compatible, but I don't I don't know how true that is of Christianity and post-structuralism, because the major figures in in that movement, um, you get the precursors like Ferdinand de Saussure, and you get uh, the big names uh, Derrida and Bart, uh, Roland Bart, and um, Michel Foucault. Um, they're atheists more or less, and and they have little interest in religion except as a social phenomena. Um, phenomenon, I guess. Um, and if you want to, if you want to see an example of this, if you want to see what they do with religion, you should read um, Derrida's late book, um, *The Gift of Death*, I think it's called. Um, and he basically takes Kierkegaard's teleological suspension of the ethical, his his leap of faith, as uh, people have called it, and he he moves that removes that from the religious realm altogether. And, and, and right, right. And you know, Derrida, of course, you know, had a very complex and interesting relationship with his own Jewish background, you know, for his whole career. And I I think you're right. I mean, I I don't think that, you know, what he is doing is itself uh, all that compatible with Christian confession. Although, again, I'm I'm more sanguine than you are about this. I think that the moves that he makes uh, ultimately can be translated into some fruitful theological reflection. That's probably true. And, you know, the, the reason I think that, and, and by the way, I mean, the, the folks who I think are doing the most interesting work with post-structuralist theory over in, the, over in Christian theology are folks like uh, Graham Ward and John Milbank, folks who, you know, started their radical orthodoxy project over at Cambridge University. 
and whose books, by and large, uh, want to say, all right, you know, what you got in modern philosophy, starting with, well, they want to push it back to Duns Scotus in the 14th century, but, you know, uh, starting with Descartes, and what you have amplified in Nietzsche, Derrida, and their successors is ultimately a travesty, or, you know, the, the term that Milbank uses is a parody of Christian Christian theology, and what Milbank does, and I mean, I think he's brilliant at doing this, and I mean, he's got this immense learning that I can only hope to emulate someday, uh, but what he does is he finds these moments in uh, Derrida, Foucault, all these people, and he says, all right, this is the Christian doctrine that they are basically flattening out. If we take this the next step and actually out postmodern, postmoderns, what we get is a very robust, ultimately Augustinian philosophy. So, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think you're right, Michael, that, you know, with existentialism, it actually starts as a Christian movement and moves away from it. And, you know, your project, among other people's projects, is to move back towards uh, some of those roots, some of those influences of Christianity. I think the movement within Christian postmodernism, uh, to the extent that, you know, we can call it Christian postmodernism, Stan Hauerwas, of course, says that. There is no Christian postmodernism. It's only Christian theft of postmodernism. He, you know, of course, uses Augustine's riff from on Christian doctrine that what we do is we steal the gold from Egypt and we use it for our own ends. Uh, but you know, what he says and what Milbank implies is that the only way you can be a Christian postmodernist is to take postmodernism and outdo them at their own game. So I think that you know I, I think you're right that it's a very different sort of project when you talk about modernism than when you're talking about uh, Kierkegaard's project, Dostoevsky's project. Well, getting back to our our topic of emergent New Calvin, Michael, uh, you know one of the things that I find fascinating about both of the movements, uh, again, you know, just kind of being sort of on the inside of both of them, but letting them know at every step that you know ultimately to the emergence, I would say, you know, ultimately I'm still a Thomist. Uh, to the new Calvinists, I would say, you know, ultimately I'm still an Erasmian rather than a Lutheran or a Calvinist. Uh, but one of the things that seems to obsess both of these movements, and you can tell me if you see this pattern as well or if it's just online that this happens, uh, but they seem to be obsessed with defining themselves and by saying, you know, uh, this person over here when they make this move, they effectively make themselves not emergent. Or this person over here, when they make this move, they make themselves, if you know, essentially not reformed. Uh, have you seen that, you know, obsession with definition? And if you want to, Michael, I mean, you know, one of the things you said on the blog was you've mainly seen emergent arise in a much younger set than I have. Uh, if you could talk about, you know, the emergence you've known, are they obsessed with definition? Just kind of run with it. They are, which is. Um which is on one level weird, right? Because you're not supposed to uh, nail things down if you're a postmodernist. But I think part of it is that both of those groups, both the emergent church and the new Calvinists, are under attack from other groups. And one thing people do when they're under attack is to draw lines in the sand. It's kind of a natural human instinct. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And all the right, big... all right. Well, and I, I just think of you know previous intellectual movements. I mean, for instance, Luther and Calvin never did call themselves Protestants. You know. Uh, as far as they were concerned, they were just being faithful Catholics. Uh, you know, John Wesley, as far as I know, and you can correct me on this, didn't call himself a Methodist. You know, so oh, I mean, I it seems Wesley. like there is a reticence 
in other intellectual movements where here there's an eagerness to say, this is what I am and this is how I'm going to define myself. I think I mean, we're just living it, in a different world. I, I, I don't think it's just them. I, 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 uh, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, what is it about our historical movement that makes people want to define themselves so obsessively? We live in a world controlled by enlightenment thought, which is obsessed with, um, uh, you know, systematizing and naming. So right. uh, in, a, in a weird way, the emergent church in being, in, to the degree to which they're concerned with defining what the emergent church is, is actually being modernist, not postmodernist. All right, all right. And I remember, you I remember when, I, um, when I was an apologist for the emergent church, which was not, I was never an apologist for the emergent church, excuse me. When I was an apologist for postmodern Christianity, I remember um, going through Brian McLaren's Three Ages of Man bit from A New Kind of Christian. Um, and somebody said, if you're a postmodernist, aren't you supposed to not separate the world into three ages? You know, I, well, just... I, I, haven't read, I, I haven't read that book from McLaren, so go, go a little bit into what those three ages are for me. Uh, well, pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. Okay, okay. The, thus, a new kind of Christian. We're living in a different age than the traditional Protestants lived in. That's all. But, I, I mean, whoever said this to me, it may have been Don Williams, in fact, um, had a... Um, I had a good point, right? I mean, if post-structuralism is about not setting up binary pairs, and I assume that extends to uh, well-defined groups of three, or three groups. So, um, it, it, like I said, in a weird way, um, the emergents are kind of um, subverting themselves by defining themselves. They're marking themselves as not quite as postmodern as they think they are. All right, I want to apologize, folks. We're having a little bit of, tr of trouble with our software. Uh, something keeps happening to interrupt our recording. So moving on, David, I mean, one of the things that we talked about briefly last week, I felt like we should have dug in a little bit more, but again, it was just an hour-long podcast, so we couldn't. But uh, we talked a little bit about the sort of celebrity culture that seems to surround both of these movements. And David, oddly enough, was the most sanguine of the three of us about this sort of celebrity culture. Uh, which I didn't expect, and that's probably why it took me off guard and rendered me unable to respond. Uh, but I'll admit, I'm still suspicious and conflicted about video feed sermons on one hand and book publishing on the other hand as the primary vehicles for Christian teaching. I mean, I know this is part of my own uh, non-denominational tradition, uh, but I still tend to privilege local teaching authority. I think that the person who is delivering a sermon to you, the person who is teaching you the, the, the theology, ought to have to look you in the eye while she or he is doing so. I mean, it is something that is particular to us Campbellites, or I mean, is this, do you think there's any sort of theological purchase here? I I got a problem with it, too. I was, uh, I, I too was surprised how, how okay with it Grubbs is, given uh, how violently angry he got about everything else. Uh, we talked about. <laughs> uh, I was I was expecting a long Grubbsian rant on uh, on the culture of celebrity, especially since I'm not sure. Uh, I know David will will listen to this, and I hope it doesn't hurt his feelings. But I'm not sure David can name ten celebrities outside of the church. He doesn't uh, keep up with pop culture that much. So I was I was I, I was surprised too uh, by how by how sanguine he was. 
Um, anyway, I, I said this a little bit last week, and I, I wanted to get into it again, too. And uh, to some degree, I think what we're seeing with the video feeds and the book publishing is the natural consequence of Calvinism's emphasis on the intellectual aspects of the Christian faith to the exclusion of all the other stuff. Because if being a Christian is about thinking and believing the right things, and that's what it's about, you don't necessarily need anything other than books and sermons. Uh, you've been to seminary, and I haven't. Nathan, did you have to take like Christian counseling classes while you were there? Uh, I, I probably should have, but I was on the Master of Arts program instead of the Master of Divinity program, so I managed to avoid them. Because I'm, I'm <laughs> thinking that like at least a third of the classes you should take at seminary should have to be about something other than theology and homiletics, because the local pastor is important for so many reasons other than the things he says on Sunday morning. Um, he or she uh, should be a person to whom the community can turn for guidance and you know sound biblical guidance, but guidance nevertheless. Um, my, my understanding about the people who operate under the Mark Driscoll video feed model is that most of their jobs is writing books and sermons, and I, I, I have a big problem with that. John Updike says um, in Rabbit Run, he talks about the main character Rabbit, he says that he has no taste for the dark, tangled, visceral aspect of Christianity, the going through quality of it, the passage into death and suffering that redeems and inverts these things. And I think that aspect of Christianity is the existential aspect, it's the lived aspect, and it's the real reason, much more than the sermon or the theology that we're supposed to gather together. And I understand saying that makes me a very bad Calvinist, but it makes me a good existentialist. And... Um, the the pastor With, needs um, you know I'm I'm thinking oh, go ahead go ahead sorry I was gonna say the pastor needs to be a part of that process for whoever wants him or her to be a part of that process and there's no way to do that if you have a congregation of five thousand people well sure and I, and I mean I, I'm sure that this is part of yeah I'm I'm sure that this stems from my own you know congregationalist leanings uh, but you know I do find myself very suspicious of centralized teaching authority in general. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, that, that is really the roots of my movement that, you know, the way that God seems to have operated in, um, in the first century church, which, you know, I realized that my movement's obsession with the first century church has its own baggage. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that Paul seems to be insistent upon uh, is that every congregation have its own presbyteroi elders, however you want to put it, uh, and its own diaconate. And, you know, it seems like the New Testament, I mean, to emphasize that those are the folks who should be doing the mass of the teaching. Now, I would say that there can be a fruitful relationship between a publishing industry and perhaps even, you know, multimedia teaching ministries and the local congregation and their teaching authority. But I think that, well, I don't think, I mean, right now, I don't even know what I think about it. I just know that I am suspicious of movements that divorce those two things that say, all right, you know, we're going to have these celebrity figures. They're going to be talking to you through Jumbotron or through your local Porter's bookstore. And, you know, that's all the more contact you're going to have with them, but they're going to be the main, I guess, the immediate teaching authority in your life. I mean, that just strikes me as wrongheaded somehow. Yeah. And, and then you've also got the kind of um, home video feeds. You could watch your church on television or on the internet. And I mean, the Scriptorium and the Christ the Center podcast have both have episodes about that this semester. And they make that case much better than I can. I, I just keep coming back to that dark, tangled, visceral aspect of Christianity that Updike talks about. And anything that seeks to subsume that under cables and video screens disturbs me. All right. You know, one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Michael, is that we have gotten feedback from Trip Fuller of the Homebrew Christianity podcast. 
Uh, he really has become one of my favorite emergent people. Uh, my favorites all time are still the folks that I do the I Wonder As I Wander uh, blog with. Uh, but we've also gotten a response from Tony Jones, uh, who has objected to some of our characterizations. We've been interacting with him. You can go over to uh, Hardly the Last Word to see those interactions. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that you know we've got almost no response from New Calvinists. Uh, what do you think we need to do, Michael, to get some New Calvinists mad enough to um, respond to us? You need to make friends with a Neo Calvinist so he'll listen to the podcast? Well, I, I do have new, new Calvinist friends. I have Driscoll fans among my friends. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe I was going to say maybe they're not quite as tech savvy, but I know the way you uh, you you know these people is from um, from that blog you did with them. So I'm I'm not sure why they're not responding. Maybe we weren't quite as offensive to the new Calvinists last week. That could be. That could be. I, you know, once again, you know, I think that. We might have mischaracterized some of the things that we do, but, you know, again, they haven't come at us and told us that, so I'm not sure how to how to respond to that. Well, uh, we're still having technical difficulties, so we'll break up the podcast here, I suppose, and pray that when we come back next week, it'll be sounding okay. Um, thanks for thanks for listening. If you want to read my blog, it's at ladders on, ladderonwheels.blogspot.com. Nathan Gilmore's blog is at nathangilmore.com slash hardly. Uh, David Grubb still hasn't put his blog back up or hasn't posted anything on it in months anyway. Um, next week we will be doing his topic about science fiction and fantasy and their relation to the Christian life. Um, until that time, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And uh, for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. So the same, same.